0: Welcome to Wildlife Outdoors with your hosts, Russell and Jose. If you have a passion for conservation of the outdoors, or you're enjoying a calming hike in the mountains, an exhilarating kayak trip on the river, feeling a fish on the end of your line, cooking on an open flame in a primitive campsite, or stalking big game just waiting for the perfect shot, you're in the right place. So put on your boots and polarized sunglasses and come along for the ride.
1: Welcome back to Wildlife Outdoors, guys. It's Jose and Russell. And today we are joined by Trenton Powell of Arkansas Game and Fish. How are you doing today, Trenton?
0: I'm doing pretty good. So he is an educator, right? You're an educator with uh, Delta Rivers? Yeah, I'm an educator at the Delta Rivers Nature Center. Um, We're located in Pine Bluff, but I travel all over the state. Um, teaching folks about wildlife and about doing outdoor recreation, outdoor activities. That's awesome.
1: And we were talking before the podcast, you said you used to work at a zoo prior to that, didn't you?
0: Yeah. So back, um, when I was in middle school, um, I actually started kind of in the zoo field as a kind of like a junior zookeeper. Um, so during that program and teaching people about the wildlife, um, the exotic wildlife we had in our education program there in new Orleans. And then after college, I actually worked, um, at the Little Rock zoo for a year and a half as an educator. Oh, nice. And kind of helped rebuild that program.
1: That's pretty cool. That's awesome, man. What made you want to take the jump from a zoo to Arkansas game and fish?
0: So I really, so part of it was, um, that nature center specifically. So Delta river specifically, um, at the zoo, I kind of fell in love with raptors, birds of prey, um, Mm -hmm. working with them. Um, I'd been introduced to it a little bit at the, um, Audubon zoo, but, um, never actually got to handle them until, um, I worked at the Little Rock zoo and, the Delta rivers nature center provided an opportunity to do that, um, provided an opportunity to do that full time. So, um, I jumped on it.
1: That's awesome. Y'all have quite the selection there.
0: Well, we have everything from, you know, different hawks. We've got owls. We've got three different species of owls right now. Um, we've got a black vulture that we're working every day on training him. Um, and he'll actually be a flighted bird. So we'll be able to fly him eventually from person to person. Um, and then we've also got two bald eagles, um, and all non-releasable birds. So they can't survive in the wild on their own.
2: Gotcha. Dude, that's uh, that's pretty cool, man. Um, so I've become a little bit of a birder, I guess more recently, just due to part, uh, just due to the nature of my research a little bit. Um, but what is it about like the raptors specifically since you worked at a zoo you could i mean you had a variety of animals to work with but what was it about them specifically that that you felt drawn to i
0: i don't know what it was i I think i just have like a, a just a respect for the power they have um they are incredibly strong and resilient birds like uh You know, if you're talking about the great horned owl in his feet, they in their feet, they've got 500 pounds per square inch of pressure. Like there's such a power that they have. And then um, their kind of ability to eventually work with people. So I I just I just find all that really cool, like falconry and hawking and things like that. And eventually we're going to move into trying to do a little bit of um, falconry and hawking at the nature center
1: that's awesome that's super cool yeah i mean i've
2: there's a falconry season for some birds here in texas i've always thought that it'd be the coolest thing to do to be able to work with birds like that but i mean it's quite the time investment and stuff i just man it maybe one day but i think i think birds of prey are super cool too one of my personal favorites is the uh the uh kestrel the american kestrel um also like before its name change was known as the American fuckwing, if I'm not mistaken. Um, for whatever reason, don't know why, but pretty cool. And then there's a one of my personal favorite birds in general. It's technically a passerine or a songbird, but it's called the loggerheaded shrike. Dude, those things are gnarly. They they eat like small mm-hmm. lizards and 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 uh, insects and stuff, but they'll impale them on like thorns and barbed wire and stuff. So if you ever walking around and you see a lizard stuck on a barbed wire fence or on a cactus thorn is probably because a loggerhead strike did that. It just kind of caches it. It'll stick them and then it'll revisit over time and and consume it. It's pretty crazy.
1: That's freaking nuts.
2: Yeah. Gnarly little birds.
0: Yeah. We have a pretty good population of loggerhead strikes here in East Arkansas. So as I'm driving, you know, driving through East Arkansas, I always kind of pay attention and be looking up on the power lines and stuff. And I'll see them pretty occasionally. That's um, awesome. And American kestrels—they probably got that nickname. They are American kestrels are, for lack of a better term, little a holes. <laughs> you know, they they can't be. <laughs> um, they're one bird, but they're they're little, and they've got just huge personalities. Like uh, is I've worked with a few of them, and they all have just these giant personalities. <laughs>
1: I feel yeah. like demo the black vulture there at the nature center has a
0: huge freaking personality. Oh yeah. So the weird thing about black vultures when you're like, which differentiates them from most of the other rafters is that they're social birds. So they like living in pretty big groups or at least, you know, being around each other for longer periods of time. Whereas most of the birds of prey are completely solitary unless it's breeding season. They don't want to be near each other. Um, so with them being really? social that. and being in yeah and being in a rehab situation um they they bond to people really really easily they imprint super easily um I see I don't know of very many black vultures that have been like successfully rehabbed if they've been raised as a chick um been successfully released cuz they just they really do they imprint very quickly
1: That's very interesting. Yeah, I think if I had to pick a favorite bird, it would probably be a peregrine falcon only because of their speed. Like the velocity that they can gain and hit the water and still sustain that to capture food just amazes the hell out of me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Over two hundred twenty miles per hour. Yeah. It's pretty insane. like they, yeah it's, it's nuts they'll hit a duck so fast that
2: oh yeah have you ever seen that video where there's a uh i think it's a mallard sitting on the ground and then all of a sudden just it just like gets knocked over and you you don't you don't really see it in real time but when they slow it down it's because the freaking peregrine just like punched it and and took off i mean it, it was insane how fast it just happened
0: oh yeah they're so so fast that yeah you, you can't see them really Um, And then they're so fast, if a mallard's flying or a duck's flying in the air, they can hit them, knock them out, and then catch them before they hit the ground. That's freaking insane. Which is pretty insane because they have to change direction to do that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah,
2: those things are insane. Pretty. I mean, birds in general, I think. So I had to take an ornithology class um, in undergrad. That by no means makes me an expert in fact I forgot about pretty much like 90% of what, what I learned, but well, it was part of our uh, requirement for our degree. And I wasn't, I didn't really care much for birds, admittedly, like I only cared about the ones that I could hunt. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but dude, that class opened up my, my mind to just birds in general. They are super, like when you, when you think about them from like a physiological standpoint and what they can do, and how they've evolved to become what they are, and, and which are like, at least in the in 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 case of the raptors, like these super um, efficient killing machines. I mean, dude, it's it's pretty incredible. And then even just like the songbirds, like the their their calls. It's essentially, I mean, it's just it's just amazing what all has transpired for them to be what they are. There's, they're pretty incredible little creatures. I, I I love them, man. Ever since I took that class, it, it's really gave me a new appreciation for birds. Maybe that's why I've also taken to become a little bit of a birder here recently. Um, they're also just fun to watch because like uh, Trenton was saying, they do have personalities. We're not, we were taught that we we're not supposed to, I guess, like acknowledge that animals have personalities, but if you watch them long enough, like you can, you can definitely see like it's, they're very individualistic. It's crazy, man. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty
1: neat. It is. It's crazy. It's one of those things where, you know, like you said, they, they say not to say the animals have, you know, personalities and stuff like that. And i am I mean, everybody sees it in dogs, of course, dogs are man's best friend. Um, but even when I had fish tanks in the past and stuff, and, uh, at one point I had a peacock bass that I got as a one inch fry and that guy had a freaking personality and he would come up and, and he would just interact. And this was when my youngest was hell, probably a year old or so. Mm -hmm. And, um, like he would see us coming and he would flare his fins out, and you'd start seeing his color start changing. And he would get pretty much excited and come to the glass. Granted, it was probably because he knew he was going to be fed. <laughs> and I fed him live food. I'd feed him rosy red minnows, um, but he would just get extremely excited. And then he would, you know, pace back and forth on the front of the tank anytime we'd walk up to the tank, even if we weren't going to feed him. And uh, he just had this real, just excited personality anytime we came to the tank. So it was pretty awesome to see stuff like that just from, you know, a, a fish that. You know, could have grown to be a massive one, but he was just, you know, an inch or two long. So it's just crazy to see how different species and stuff like that are different. Cause I used to also breed African cichlids and they had very different personalities than what this technically South American cichlid had. So,
0: yeah. So any animal, if you spend enough time with them and watching them, like they're gonna display some sort of personality, even, you know, a box turtle or, you know, anything, Mm -hmm doesn't matter what they are that each of them kind of has their own little thing and yeah they don't want to anthropomorphize them but yeah i do it anyway as an animal caretaker you kind of yeah. have to <laughs> eventually you're gonna fall in love with them and care for them so you do it yeah right
2: so so Trenton, you went from working at the zoo to working in education there at the nature center um how did you find yourself into the field of, or, or being able to work with animals? Like, was that something that you just had an affinity for, like growing up? Like, were you exposed to, um, I guess, to nature and, and, and wildlife and stuff at an early age, or how did you find, I guess, where did that, where does that passion come from for you?
0: So, yeah, um, I've always had a passion for animals and it didn't really matter what animal it was um, other than like mice and rodents. They're, they're not my favorites, but um, <laughs> I, where, it, I, where it came from, I don't necessarily know. Um, I just always loved them. So we growing up, like we had chickens and ducks and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, always loved caring for those guys and taking care of those guys. And then, you know, we always had family dogs, loved those guys. And then horses like really became my thing. So growing up, I was, Anything that I could be doing around horses, I was doing. Um, So I was taking riding lessons for years, and then eventually I started volunteering um, at a therapeutic riding center. You know, cleaning stalls just to be around horses, and, you know, walking, leading horses just to to be around them. Um, So I've always wanted to do something with animals. Um, First, I thought it was vet school, Uh, but that didn't work out. Um, but I was able to find another avenue for, you know, this passion basically. And that was animal caretaking. Nice. That's awesome.
2: Dude. I have only ever taken one, one class, I guess that would be close to something one would actually no. So this class was anatomy and physiology of domestic animals. It was a, it was a taught in the animal science department at my, at my college. It's the only class I hadn't taken some other animal science related courses, but, um, nothing like this. This was a class that students had to take to go to vet school. Uh, I never had to take a class like that. This was the first. And it was by, and the only to this day. And it was by far one of, if not the hardest class I've ever had to take. Even now as a grad student, it was incredibly difficult. We had quizzes literally every day because the professor thought that, and and I see her point, but she thought that in order for us to best, um, actually like put into action what we were learning was to quiz us. So we would have to retain the knowledge. So we had quizzes every single day. Our mm-hmm. tests were two parts because we'd have like a, we'd have a test like on a Monday and then we'd have the other half on Wednesday and then we would review it on Friday. So a week of testing essentially because we covered so much material
0: oh, wow. and
2: to make it worse, we, so I was in the wildlife program, and one of our required courses was a and anatomy and physiology. But there was like a biology section, and then there was an animal science section. They encouraged us to take the biology section because it was, I guess, more in line with what we would be dealing with and not as intense. Um, essentially, it would be a little bit easier. And the animal science course was – obviously the harder choice, but you also had to have uh prereqs to take it. And if you took it as a wildlife person, chances were very good that you did not have the necessary requirements to take that course. You had to get uh, a waiver signed essentially. And so I had a scheduling conflict with my, with the, with the AMP course in the biology department. So I had to take the animal science one and uh, the firm remember the first day in class, she goes, look, I know some of you guys are not animal science people, um, but I'm not going to slow down. You're just going to have to keep up. And she goes, I don't, this is a class I don't even recommend my junior level students to take because I don't think they're ready for it. So, you know, if if you fail, I'm sorry, <laughs> essentially. So, dude, I had never studied so hard in my life. I, I passed barely, but, I mean, I, I was one of the few Wallace students to pass. And uh, it was, I think it gave me a new appreciation for what vets have to deal with, I thought that maybe I'd want to go that route someday. But after that class, like that, nah, I think I'm I'm pretty pretty okay with, <laughs> with what I'm doing.
1: That's freaking nuts! I took yeah. human anatomy and physiology one and two, and uh, along with medical terminology and. I took my medical terminology prior to taking my anatomy and physiology so I had a lot of the terminology down which made it a lot easier to understand the anatomy and physiology of it but I couldn't even imagine trying to go into that for animals and not having a terminology course before that just sounds like a living hell
2: <laughs> Dude it was brutal We would have um, all the wildlife kids we would have we would have like study groups in the library and if we were lucky we'd have like one or two animal science students like with us to help us along but dude, if they were struggling and they and some of them were, imagine us like we were just like a fish out of water, dude. But it was either pass or pass or fail, and I didn't want to retake it because I think I was gonna graduate the next semester if I pass. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not, I am not retaking this course. So I had to do everything. That was the hardest semester in my life. I think I took 16 hours on top
0: of that. And Holy uh,
1: shit.
0: yeah, it was it was brutal. The thing about the animal world is there's so much variety. You know, so you go from, you know, a dog to a coyote and there, you know, there's differences in their, you know, physiology and you go from, you know, a hawk to an owl and there's significant differences in their physiology. So that just, that's part of that is just what makes it so hard is, you know, everything, you know, you think, oh, we're learning about birds. Like, yeah, if you're learning about two different species, they can completely change the game on you. So. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And some birds have backwards knees and stuff like that. Just simple things that are completely different.
2: <laughs> Even the way their feet are arranged, like, like uh, woodpeckers, their feet look like an X so they can grasp onto things. And then, you know, raptors' feet are are changed, like are, are look totally different. It's, it's, it's wild, dude. And that's what makes, I think, wildlife in general, just so interesting. Just those, those differences, this is what makes them so incredible.
1: Oh, for sure. So we've talked about our love for animals and wildlife. So me and Jose have had uh, a conversation previously on episodes talking about the dichotomy of the fact that we actually love animals, but yet we hunt animals. So what's your take on that?
0: So I, I believe people are part of the food chain. We're part of, the, we're part of this mm-hmm. ecosystem. We have to be involved in it. Um, so, you know, yes, we love animals. Like I love seeing, I love just seeing deer, but you know, I want to harvest the deer as well because we're part of that food chain and we do our part just like any other species of wildlife, like wolves and coyotes do their part to control deer populations. Um,
1: exactly. So,
0: you know, a lot of people, they, you know, Oh, how can you love animals and kill them at the same time? It is. I love and respect animals and the natural world and you know I believe we're a part of that and we have to be involved in it.
1: Absolutely and the way that I see it (laughs) is so there's a natural way of checks and balances in nature for species to actually um, you know remain available so back before humans started building roads and building towns, building cities and stuff like that. So there was natural pred- uh, predation where these wolves, coyotes, whatever the case may be, were, you know, killing animals. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the mammal population was pretty much checked and balanced by itself. But whenever you start having, you know, humans come mm-hmm. in and build roads and displace wildlife and all this stuff, then that affects the predators, which then means there can be overpopulation. I feel like that there's, you know, some people out there that, uh, don't understand or that don't really see the benefits of you know population control and they're like well you know before humans were here before humans built this city like they did it's like well yeah but you got to think about all the predators and all the other wildlife that was ran out that messes up that total balance that was in that ecosystem so i think there's some people that just don't understand that and they're like well you shouldn't kill that animal it's like well if if we don't do this population control because there's science that goes into see how much we can harvest and if we don't do that then there's going to be overpopulation there's going to be famine there's going to be disease like there's a lot more that conservation goes into in order to preserve the wildlife but i just feel like you know some people don't understand that
0: yeah like well, you're you're 100 percent right we have to displace our our presence basically Um, so, you know, like out West, you know, recently in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of debate on wolves and even, um, like over, um, where we've got the red wolf projects going on in East, um, United States and the Eastern United States, um, you know, bringing wolves back actually helps wildlife yeah there is going to be rough and they're going to go after you know occasionally they're going to go after livestock and things like that but their presence helps offset the fact that hunters and anglers are in decline especially hunters um Mm -hmm. in the last decade you know hunting numbers have gone down 10 percent like we need something else. We need help to offset that. We need more hunters and we need more wildlife to help us out, um, in controlling some of those deer and elk and things like that in those populations, those prey species populations.
1: I did not know that the, uh, the trend of hunters was declining like that. That's interesting to think about how yeah. the world is changing. I mean, You know, we all talk about the younger generations and how they're living on phones and stuff like that. But I've never actually thought about how Mm -hmm. that affects, you know, hunters and anglers and and just the numbers of us out there. That's crazy to think about.
2: So I'm going to be, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit, but also because I think that, let me see how I can word this. So the the argument for overpopulation and how hunting can control that, it's kind of conflated at times or overused. Uh, depending, I think for some species in some places that is true. But at the same time, I don't think it's something that can be said across the board, especially because hunters really. It 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 kind of varies with who you're talking to there are some people who will go out and you know they'll try and tag out try and get the meat in the fridge and then there are those who are going after a specific animal and if they don't see that animal they won't shoot anything so no one really knows how much or how many animals are being truly being harvested and how many um and whether or not that's really controlling the population but from a but now that being said so in in yeah, It's been a long time since I've, since I've even had to think about this. So hopefully I don't get my facts, um, uh, mixed up. If anybody's out there who's a biologist can correct me, please feel free to do so. But when referring to mortality, they're generally like two types. You have additive and you have compensatory additive mortality, meaning that the removal of those individual or the removal of individuals will have a direct impact on the total survival of the population. Compensatory, meaning that you can remove individuals from the population and and without without the the survivability of the population being negatively affected until a certain threshold is crossed. So like, for example, um, let's say that 20% of the deer population can be harvested before you start seeing a decline. Um, then 21% or 22%, once you hit that, then you'll start seeing a decline in the, in the survivability of the population. And there's been some new science coming up about, um, I forget what it's, what, it, what it's called, but essentially there is like a type of compensatory where the survivability does change, but it drastically changes once a certain threshold is reached. But anyways, so the way these kind of, so it's thought that in a management perspective, a well thought out management plan that hunting is in the compensatory uh range of things so that means a certain number of animals can be removed before the population is harmed right like i said before that's what the tag situation is kind of filled out and they do this by doing population surveys and stuff so essentially i think what that could so what that does is allows us to hunt without affecting the population so if Mm -hmm overpopulation is an issue then hunting in and of itself is not the solution but this is where predators like wolves and mountain lions and things come into play and so they can kind of help control that from when, when hunters can't because we can't hunt deer year-round mm-hmm. but they can't they don't know the laws of man you know um, mm-hmm. so that's where I guess the checks and balances kind of come into play but in addition to that what hunting does do is Theoretically, so the other part of the compensatory mortality thing is that, as individuals are removed, theoretically, conceptually, there are more resources that can be allocated to the remaining individuals, which is, I guess, the compensation part of things, right? The population, or you know, or uh, the um, habitat is, or mortality is compensated for from other like mortality mortality factors. So you have more individuals removed, but that means there's more resources for the remaining individuals. So there's more food, there's more space, more water, all that stuff that they need. So you should have a healthier population overall, which then would probably lead to like less disease and things like that, uh, less competition, so less stress and all that stuff. But that's going to like the biological side of stuff. And again, I haven't thought about this in, in ages. So if anybody out there is... Um, if I'm getting my stuff mixed up, please feel free to let us know. But and please feel free to you know fact check me, whoever's listening. But essentially, those are the things. So I don't think the I think the, I don't think the overpopulation thing is uh, totally like the end all be all argument of hunting for sure. But it definitely does help. Hunting definitely does help. Not to mention the you know dollars raised from hunters, um, like the uh, Robertson the Pittman Robertson Act. So there's a, cons- a concise tax plate uh, placed on firearms, on ammunition, on camo, on optic. Well, I don't know about camo, but on optics, anything that can be really used for hunting, there's a concise tax placed on it, and um, that goes towards habitat restoration. So your money, aside from from taxes and all that stuff, goes towards conservation. And the same, there's, a, there's, it's kind of funny, but there's another one similar to that for fishing called the Dingle Johnson Act, and it's the same exact thing. Yeah. There's a concise tax pla- pla- placed on fishing products and that also goes towards um habitat conservation and restoration also so hunters dollars hunters time and not only that but typically the the hunters people who are invested in in the end in, in what they're doing and the animals that they pursue are going and fishermen this goes to them too Will typically be more outspoken when it comes to protecting you know these these species as well as the habitat and things and it's part of the reason why conservation organizations like ducks unlimited cca uh what is it the wild turkey federation something like that um all this stuff like exists and they're largely comprised of of hunters and stuff like that so i think there's a lot to be said about hunting and hunters and fishermen or fisher people whatever you want to say in general and it kind of sucks that you know like like I, i agree with Trent 100 i think we're just as as much a part of the environment but they treat us like or not they but we can't hunters can often be treated as like monsters and part of the problem when you know they've probably done more than 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 most people who you know in the general population have done um for wildlife conservation
1: absolutely and and you know along with the taxes and stuff like that that are placed on firearms and ammunition, um, you know, hunting licenses and stuff like that. People, you know, there's a lot of hunters that care about conservation and anglers that care about conservation and give more than just what their license is. And they'll do donations or give their time um, and all that goes back into the con- uh, conservation, it goes back into, uh, you know, education of the public, which then in turn helps more educated anglers and hunters go out there, spread the word, do their part. And so it's kind of more of like a snowball effect. And so you spoke a lot on the biological side of it, but in terms of the human side of it, um, it it's the same thing. So I, th- I think there's a, a good balance and that's where a lot of the science comes into. Of course, nature's going to do its own thing, but if humans can do what they can to help on both sides of that as well you know that that's that's kind of you know how conservation works and why there's an entire conservation science department and and stuff like that and whether it be at natural resource agencies or universities and stuff like that exactly
0: and back to what you were saying jose like There's no group out there that raises more money for wildlife conservation and not just target species, not just deer and elk and ducks and things like that, but wildlife conservation as a whole, there's no group that raises more money um, than hunters do.
2: Yep. Not PETA, no, any other organization, hunters and fishermen and those who just have an appreciation for those animals. You know, it's, it's, uh but yeah, but nobody really talks about that. And rarely do people care to even hear about it. But I mean, it is what well, it that's is. That's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. So speaking of hunting and fishing, Trenton, um, so what, I know, I know we talked a little bit about it, but uh, was was that something that you grew up doing or is that something you kind of like found yourself getting more into uh, as an adult or in your adult years?
0: So... Um, I started off, um, doing a little bit of small game hunting with my dad. Um, after he passed, um, hunting, I really, I mean, since I was eight years old, probably hadn't done any hunting. Um, but fishing was something we also did. And I mean, every weekend we could be out, we were fishing. Um, and then after he passed, my grandmother kind of took the torch and kept us fishing and kept us going um so fishing something i've done my entire life um mostly catfish and um um mostly like when i got to arkansas small ponds and things like that um hunting is something i've gotten back into I'm kind of an adult onset hunter again i guess um because like deer hunting wasn't a big thing when i was a kid um, my dad did deer hunt but it wasn't something that he brought us on um necessarily um and like getting into duck hunting and dove hunting and all that type of stuff. I've done more as an adult, um, after starting with the agency. Um so kind of that adult onset learning, kinda of learning on my own a little bit and trying to find some mentors or have been finding mentors that kind of help guide me along and push me along in the way.
1: That's exactly where I feel like I'm at right now. And
2: going back to the point you brought up earlier, Trent, about declining hunters' numbers, I feel like that's a lot of it. You know, I feel like a lot of people who currently hunt, they were introduced to it at a, fir- you know, at a fairly young age. They had mentors. They had people to kind of usher them into that sport. And um, now, I mean, I think if, I think if you look at the numbers, I haven't looked at them recently, but one, they are declining, but two, there's a pretty – there's a pretty interesting gap in like the age of hunters. More of them are quite old and there's not a whole lot of recruitment, hunter recruitment. That's one of the issues too. Um, with the declining numbers, there's not a lot of people who are just, you know, interested or wanting to, or or maybe who are interested, but just don't have a mentors or anything to, to do it. But, so I think it's pretty freaking awesome, man, that you're like taking the initiative to learn and stuff. Cause I, I was lucky that, I, I So I kind of had a mentor, but didn't. I, my grandfather sparked the interest. But in Texas, you know, it's really hard to find a place to hunt if you don't have a lot of money, if you don't have the land, if you don't know people who would be kind enough to let you out there. Public land, well, there is public lands, but growing up, we didn't know about them. If I don't even know if it was a thing at that point in time. Um, I learned about that later on. And even now, public lands have just become inundated with, with people. And it's just, it's uh, extremely difficult. It's not like out west which is interesting because although Hunter's numbers seem to lead to the impression that they're declining, you'd probably ask some people from out West and they'll say, no, we have like too many, but um, which is, which is interesting. We should, you know, but, uh, but anyways, so yeah, I think it's pretty pretty awesome that you're taking the initiative and, and trying to figure it out yourself. And, and, cause I think you uh, Russell, and, and I would throw a lump myself in there as well. Um, at least when it comes to like deer and stuff like that, uh, big game, um, I, I mean, we really don't have anyone to kind of show us the ropes, especially when it comes to like public lands and stuff. And, uh, and that I think is the most daunting part. I think that's largely why I haven't myself really put that much effort to that since I've been here in college station, um, just cause I don't know where to start. You know, it's really, really intimidating to me at least. And, uh, but yeah, man, so. I feel you there but i understand from a previous um before the episode started that you actually have started to find some some luck man um in in your hunting adventures you want to uh talk a little bit about that
0: Um, a little bit of luck so um trappings another thing recently have started to get into um my boss jason he's he's been trapping for a long time and um leads several classes so Um, kind of been tagging along with him and doing that and, you know, catching raccoons and things like that. But like my best trapping um, experience is when I caught a bobcat actually in a foothold trap. Oh, wow. That was, that was very exciting. (laughs) So it was actually the last (laughs) trap we were checking for the day and we come around the corner and you know, it's a bobcat. It's big, but, when we turned that corner, I thought I had a mountain lion in that thing. I, it was like, it was huge <laughs> to me. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, Is that a freaking mountain lion? I was like, no, it's about that. Like, um So that was super exciting to me. Um, that's probably been like my most successful um, hunting, trapping experience. Um, I've been successful killing a couple of ducks, few ducks. Um, so hopefully this year we're going to get out there and be able to do a lot more. Um, and then this year I had my best Turkey run in. Um, so I've been picking up Turkey hunting and trying to do it a little bit or not a little bit, but I've been trying to do it for the last few years. Um, and this year I'd planned three days to take off and go Turkey hunting. And then here comes the day and the day before I get sick and I'm talking about fevers and shaking. It was bad. So I couldn't do that. So, um, I got over it by the third day, um, was able to go back to work, but then, you know, I had to work the weekend. So I had to work that Saturday. Um, but I'm like Sunday, I've got Sunday and that was the last day of season. Um, so I go out to one of our, public land um, spots here, so Warren Prairie WMA. Uh, you know, I've only got one day, I'm like, let's just try this out. And I know, like, turkeys are they are skittish by the end of the season. Like, by the end of the season, everybody's tried every call, probably shot at them a few times. If, if that turkey's still standing, it's going to be skittish. So I wasn't... Yo thinking I was going to have a very good experience, you know, I was just like, uh, it's going to be a day walking in the woods, you know, like I, I'm, we're going to try, we're going to be calling, we're going to be careful and stuff like that. But I'm like, uh, nothing's going to happen today. So I'm walking, walking, and walking about basically like halfway away from my truck. Um, and I'm probably two and a half miles in. Um, I going through this area that's basically like a whole bunch of timber and then it's got these wide open spaces in between. So it's like you're walking through these islands of timber and then you've got this this wide open field and then you're walking to the next patch of timber. So, you know, before I walk out into the wide open spaces, I'm trying to, you know, stand back in the timber a little bit, I call a little bit, and I'm looking to see if I see anything um, before I walk out. So I I thought I didn't see anything. I didn't hear anything. So I go to uh, just about to step out of the timber and then out of the corner of my eye, I I see this Tom and he's in full strut. Um, And he's got this Jake with him hanging out. And I just hit the deck. I just dropped. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I sat there on the ground for probably about 30 minutes, just kind of crawling around, crawling around. Like, I had called, and he did not respond to it at all. Like, he didn't care other than, you know, him strutting around. But then he's working on this little hill. He's just kind of strutting around on this little hill, and then the Jake starts moving closer to me. I'm like, Gee, here we go. <laughs> so this Jake, he comes up. I'm like, he's going to bust me. He's going to bust me. He comes up. He's, like, kind of looking in my area, but I guess he doesn't see me. because I just, I'm not moving. He's a little bit suspicious, he walks around me and he's within 20 yards of me and I'm just laying on the ground. And I thought like at one second, I thought he saw me, but he didn't and he just keeps on walking past me. I'm like, huh, I might have a little bit of luck today. So the Jake goes, (laughs) he just, he disappears somewhere. And then here's the Tom, he comes down off this hill into the field and you know, into the wide open field. So I'm just sitting there and watching him and watching him. And like I said, I'm here for 30 minutes just watching this guy. And then he goes to this other little hill that's got some brush on it. And I'm like, oh, from where I'm, you know, laying, I'm like, if he gets behind there, he should not be able to see me. I can get in close and wait till he gets out of the other side of it and, you know, take him. So... You know, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. He go. He goes right up that hill, right behind that brush. I'm like, this was perfect. Here we go. Then I get up and I start trying to creep my way towards him. I get to a tree, then I stop and I'm waiting. And I wait there for about 15 minutes. I'm like, he did not come out the other side of that. So then I try and creep my way up there real, real slow. And then as I get closer to it, the brush was actually pretty high up. Um, it was like a small tree basically, or, you know, a small bush, but he could see me from underneath all the leaves. So as I started creeping up, he could see me and he just took off the other way. So he had a 15 minute head start. That was about about (laughs) the closest encounter I had with a good legal Turkey. So that was exciting. That was like, yep, next year we're getting more time. We're doing this again.
1: That's freaking awesome. Heck yeah
2: i've i've only ever been turkey hunting once it was uh, i was invited out to a ranch out in the hill country uh by my friend todd i don't know if you listen todd but shout out buddy miss you but um Todd's a good dude and uh, he i forgot how he met this gentleman but i think it was his dad's friend or something and so we went out there and um i can't remember what Year, what time of year was I think it was already kind of late into the season because these turkeys were like insanely skittish. And I've, I've heard they have incredible eyesight, I don't know how good it is, but I hear it's pretty damn good. And so, we go and, and you know, we, we walked into the ranch blind, we didn't do any scouting, nothing like that, we didn't have the time, and also it's so far away from where we were living at the time, we just we just couldn't drive back and forth to do any scouting. So, we're just like, we'll just you know, hopefully, we can just get lucky, you know. And so, he had. He had a decoy, and I had bought a slate call, like, the week before. And I'm pretty sure my roommate hated me because every chance I got, I was practicing on that thing. and I was playing turkey calls on my computer. I was trying to get it down. Those things can be kind of tough. But finally got, like, okay, I guess, you know, not not nothing crazy. But we get out there, man, and uh, we set up. And, I mean, we just didn't see anything that day. And we we're walking back to the cabin and we saw some turkeys by a fence. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We get back to the cabin. We had breakfast and we're leaving the cabin. And We looked out the window and there's some turkeys by the fence, like 200 yards away. we are like, dude, if we go out the back door, go all the way around, we should be able to at least have a shot. You know, we're using shotguns. So, you know, with, with turkey chokes, so maybe 30 yards, 40 yards max. It's like, that's all we need. Dude, the moment we get out that back door, I don't know if they saw us or heard us, but we just see them tearing off down the pasture. I mean, I've never mm-hmm. seen a turkey run so fast. They were gone. And we're like, shit, okay. So we we, we picked a spot out to set up, to put the decoy out. And then uh, we sat down and some brush and everything. And Todd was on the gun first. So we're all cameled up and everything and tried to get tucked in as best we could. So then I hit the slate call. And we hear a gobble but it sounds pretty far off, like a couple hundred yards. And so I, I, so we kind of relaxed a little bit and then hit the call again. And this time it's a little bit closer. So I let a couple minutes go by, hit the call. It's a little bit closer. And then we're like, all right, maybe maybe we'll get some luck. And then I hit the call one last time and I didn't hear nothing. I was like, damn man. And so we just kind of sat there, seemed like forever right? And uh, maybe 15, 20, 30 minutes, something like that passed by. I was like, you know, I'm just going to hit the call again, whatever. Maybe we can entice some something else. And I hit the call again and dude, this turkey gobbled so loud. Like it, it was like next to us, but we couldn't see it. And I just remember looking over at Todd and his eyes were huge, dude, the size of saucers, you know? And he's like, holy shit. And he starts shaking. And I start shaking. And then... Just at like maybe a minute after that, this freaking truck like or this this vehicle tears down like close to us, and scared that turkey away. We never saw it, never heard it again. And we we're like, damn! And we had to leave the next day. Oh, and that was that was the uh, the only dude. I, I, we never even saw it, but the fact that we well, I was pretty pumped because I felt like I called it in. I don't know if it did or didn't, but I feel like I
1: did. Yeah.
2: And I and I've, I I was like, dude, this is awesome. I want to do this more, but I've never had the chance to go back since then. That was. Geez, probably nine, eight, nine years ago now. And, uh, but dude, I've, I've always wanted to try my hand at turkey hunting again. I think, uh, I think next year I'm going to put it in for some public land places here in Texas and try and, and, and test my luck. Cause it's freaking awesome, dude. I, I, I enjoyed it. I think, I think it's, and I think maybe that's why I like duck hunting so much. And I think I maybe told you this, I think it's the, the interaction, you know, like I know you can rattle in a buck. I know you can, uh, they have like bleat calls and stuff like that, but I don't know, dude, there's something about like hearing a bird or an animal respond back, I guess it'd be like, you know, bugling in an elk or something like that, mm-hmm. or seeing ducks like turn on a spread of decoys. Like I just, I love bird hunting and I think it's because of that like interaction.
1: I could definitely see it dude your uh your turkey hunting story sounds very similar to my only time turkey hunting as well and uh I went with my brother and we were out I don't remember if it was del valley or somewhere in that area and um we went out to somebody that I, if i'm not if I'm not mistaken it was somebody he knew that knew somebody, and so we were, it was like second hand third hand uh you know property that we were on and uh he had a slate call and I had, was using the box call and we go out there and we had gone behind these this big bushel of prickly pear cactus and uh, i was trying to call trying to call trying to call and and we weren't hearing any gobbles or anything and i just i started i was young it's probably i don't know maybe 10 15 years ago and um i'm just kind of getting bored and i'm like "Eh, whatever so then he starts getting on a slate call and we hear a couple gobbles and he calls this turkey in and same thing he'd call and we'd hear it we're like oh okay it's coming and then he'd call again it'd be closer this time and we did like three or four times (laughs) and uh <laughs> we're sitting there and we don't hear anything for a good while and so he's like well, i'm gonna try to call again and he starts <clears throat> on that slate call and then you just hear <clears throat> real loud And he's like oh shit he's close and so we're like we try you know getting sneaking around the cactus a little bit we're looking and we're just like oh crap where's that and then i'll never forget because my brother started laughing because he peeks his head around his bushel of cactus and the turkey just Put his head out sideways and look directly at him. And it <laughs> freaking took off, and you just see nothing but ass and elbows of the turkey running straight away from And so, we were, of course, we were bummed because, you know, we didn't get the turkey, but dude, it was freaking hilarious just watching. They mm. run so funny, too. Um, and, they <laughs> do. Oh, yeah. It was freaking oh, hilarious. Man.
2: And what's crazy is for such a large bird, they fly really well, too. Mm-hmm. It's oh, crazy, yeah.
0: man. Oh. It is. Turkeys are crazy. Creatures. My boss, Jason, he's a pretty good, he's pretty big in turkey hunting too. And he's had to take a few shots from in the air at one because they, they all fly right over you. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh
2: yeah. That's yeah, crazy, man. That's something I would, I would really like to try and do again is go turkey hunting. That was, that was a lot of fun. Same. So when, when is turkey season for you guys up in Arkansas?
0: So it is in the spring. So, um, we are last, like the usually the last couple of weeks, of April, last week of April, um, first week of May. Um, hmm. So our turkey season doesn't last super okay. long. It's like three or four weeks. Gotcha.
2: And can you hunt uh, turkeys with a shotgun and a bow? Or uh, like, what are, you know, regulations? Or they kind of just depend on the unit, also.
0: So, yeah, we're shotgun and um, archery. Um, so. I think it's pretty open. I don't think you're restricted necessarily anywhere. Um, so I think if, you know, if you want to shoot archery at a turkey, you can um, pretty much anywhere in the state. Um, but shotgun is what's typical. You know, there's not very many people in Arkansas that yeah. hunt turkeys with bows. Although I see that online a lot. And in Arkansas, typically people are using shotguns. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And- archery with a turkey would be be tough.
2: Yeah. dude, have you seen those broadheads? They're like little guillotines, freaking
1: crazy. Oh yeah, dude, it's nuts. Decapitating turkeys on the run and whatnot. It's wild.
0: Those, <laughs> the broadheads it's are crazy, just huge. The blades are just amazingly huge, coming off of the front of those things.
1: Right, like a three yeah. inch, three and a half inch, freaking just
0: massive.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think if I were to do it again, I don't think I'm, I'm comfortable enough with my bow yet. To do that,
1: um, i definitely stick with a scatter gun for sure. Oh, for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What does what your uh,
2: your turkey hunting setup look like, Trenton?
0: So I've got a Remington 870 with a um, full choke in the front of it, turkey choke in front of it. Um, plain old gun. I need to paint it. Um, but it's just a plain gun, um, 28 inch barrel, Woodstock. <laughs> nice.
1: Yeah. old faithful yeah those 870s are mm-hmm. sweet man that's the first shotgun i ever shot was a remington 870 they there
2: was a there was a time frame where remington where they were having issues with some of their uh, newer model 870s um i had one it was a 20 gauge luckily i didn't have any serious issues with it um uh, there was just one minor thing like it wouldn't cycle some shells I had some problems with mm. Um, but everything else cycled just fine. And, dude, that thing was a blast. That was my dove gun. I, I, I think to this day, it's been responsible for the longest shot I've ever made on a Dove. And mm. I, I missed that gun. I don't have it anymore, but I, I miss that gun so much. It was a great little gun. I loved it.
1: My uh, Browning BPS 12 gauge has a, a similar issue.
0: Yeah, mine does too. It'll it won't shoot like really short rim stuff. Um <laughs> and it does it does okay with like brass rims, um but it it doesn't do really well with like the I'm guessing aluminum rims or what they are using or um if it's really mm-hmm. if it's a short yeah. rim on it, it doesn't like it.
2: That's exactly how mine was. I was looking back those Fiocchi's had a, had the, the low brass, like the really small rim one that you were saying, but then, yeah. you know, all the other, like the higher brass stuff, it was like, which is fine. But, which is fine because the Rios, I, I, I love running Rios in my gun. I still do. Um, they were mostly high brass from what I remember, uh, at least what I put through the 20 gauge and it, it, it was just fine. Yeah. But yeah, dude, that thing was was sick, man. It was super light. I love twenty gauges in general. I think the next gun I want, next shotgun I want, is probably gonna be a double barrel or semi-auto twenty. Um, I have seen some turkey guns in four ten though, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then, but they're made for like they have a I can't remember who makes it, but it has like a super tight choke. And there's a new um, well. New to me because I didn't know about it. But there's like a, I can't remember what it's called, a heavy shot or something like that. So it's supposed to be denser than lead.
0: TSS.
2: Yes, that stuff. Yeah, TSS. It's supposed to be denser than lead.
0: It'll make a 410 as deadly as a 12 gauge for a turkey.
2: Yeah, it's crazy.
1: That's insane.
2: It's amazing how far like. Just technology and, and, well, I mean, really anything. But it's particularly, like, in, in hunting and fishing has really come. Especially, like, ammunition. Like, now I saw this thing where they're having, um, like, rifle rounds with, like, polymer cases or something like that. I can't remember the name of the manufacturer. And uh, oh. and then Hornady, I mean, years, years, back, came out with that Lev Revolution stuff. So it has – it used to be that like you can only shoot, like, blunted or rounded-faced ammunition in those in – those uh, tube fed magazines because of, of primer strikes but one they came out with that that tip that deflects so you can have like something similar to a ballistic tip but with a um with a rubber tip that kind of deflects and deforms but then regains shape so you can have a higher ballistic coefficient projectile in your tube fed gun without worry of like you know setting the next one in front of it off or whatever it's pretty pretty wild and then the tss shit man it's it's just it's insane and then now they have like in, in the archery world they have that that site where you can like range something and then it automatically adjusts for to account for that range it's freaking crazy yeah
0: that's crazy
2: i think burris makes it it's wild dude Let's see if yeah, I'm. I think
0: it. it's a Garmin.
2: oh yeah Garmin makes one too
0: Yeah, it is pretty neat. Like, you can put the trigger on your grip, so basically all you're doing is drawing. You press, you know, you range it, and they'll drop a pin, and you just put that pin on your target, and that's it. That's pretty crazy.
2: Yeah, Garmin has one. Um, Burris has one. It's called the Oracle 2. Dude, it's wild, man. It's almost $600.
1: Jesus. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I'll just <laughs> stick to my uh, my traditional three pin. <laughs> for real. How it works:
2: first, you sight in at twenty yards, then you sight in up to two additional distances. The rangefinder measures the exact distance to your target while at full draw. It instantly calculates the exact trajectory for the distance and shot angle. The sight displays a bright LED pin at the exact aiming point for your shot. Dude, that's interesting. Almost cheating in a way.
1: Yeah, it's almost like... cheating. But the fact that you still have to sight it in at, at uh, three distances makes it a little less cheating, but I think it's still pretty much cheating. But but I think
2: <laughs> I think what it what it does is from my limited research obviously, you sight in those those three distances to give it like a to help it calibrate. And then from there for, for your specific arrow, broadhead setup, whatever. Yeah. And then from there yeah. you can adjust it wherever. And, uh, which is, I mean, I guess it's, it's quite a process. I, I don't know how I feel about it. I feel like it is cheating, but at the same time, if it makes someone more, well, I don't know how it would make somebody more accurate because that's just not really how a site works. Like the archer yeah. has to be accurate, you know, the, the pin just yeah. gives them a, an aiming point, really. Yeah. So oh, I, don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Yeah. I don't know if it would make somebody more accurate, but they can, it, it does make it more efficient. Like you don't have to bring a range finder, range it, put it back. You know, right. if you have a slider, slide it. Or if you have a pin, you know, pull, you draw back all that stuff. But I think it is, uh, yeah, I don't know. I have to think about this. I have to ruminate on this.
1: Right. Cheating or not, I don't think I've ever 100
2: dollars on a site. Man, I don't know, dude. If, if money were no object, I'd probably get a carbon bow with like victory VAPs, uh, TKOs. And then I don't know about Broadheads. I haven't shot I Broadheads enough. And then. I'd probably I would probably spend six five hundred dollars on a site. I don't think I'd get one of those sites, but I'd probably get like a uh like a top of the line I don't know, C B E or Axle or Spot Hog or
1: something like that. Yeah, if, if money yeah. weren't an issue that uh that definitely changes stuff, but still mm, six hundred dollars <laughs> <laughs> for a site.
2: Dude, I know. That's a rifle scope, dude. Yeah. Like right. a, not like a good one, like a nice one. Yeah. That's a gun. That's a whole other gun. You can buy another shotgun.
0: Right, a couple. Of That's them. crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. Wild
2: wow, man. And money being
0: no object, I'd probably go with like an ultra view sight. There we go. That's probably what I'm black eagle arrows.
2: Ooh, dude, I like black eagle a lot. What are you? What are you running now for your archery setup?
0: so my archery setup's a bear um wild it's a 2017 bow it was like my first big bow purchase the first one i bought was a psc nova from 1986 um and that's how i kind of got back into shooting archery um but it ended up with a cracked limb so i had to i had to buy a new bow um but I love my bear. It it's a single cambo, which was great for me to kind of learn on and learn how to work on. Um mm-hmm. and it, it still it it holds itself up against, you know, dual cambos still, so it is a pretty good setup. And then my arrows are some what are they? They're beaming, um I wanna say they're like hunter pros or something like that. Um But I've been kind of paying attention to Ranch Ferry the last few years. I don't know if y'all are familiar with him. And I made my arrows like a really heavy setup. So I'm shooting a 100-grain insert and 125-grain broadhead. It's an Exodus, um, QAD Exodus broadhead. Nice. So you're a fixed-blade kind of guy. yeah yeah i am um yeah i don't know like the the way i think is i don't want a broadhead to fail i'd rather it be ready to go and that's kind of the way i think about you know any hunting equipment like i have a pump shotgun because i don't want an automatic shotgun to fail (laughs) you know like i'd rather be able to eject around myself if it gets caught you know if it gets stuck and not be trying to pull on a a handle or something like that. So I try and think of having stuff that has the least, you know, the least probability of failure.
1: Absolutely. Less points of failure, the the better it's going to last. I mean, I I agree. And I'm not going to lie, dude. The last,
2: the only, actually the only few deer I've shot with, uh, with, uh, with archery equipment, I had actually used, rage hypodermics i think which are a two blade mechanical um i got the no collar one because i don't like the idea of having a uh like an o-ring or a collar um heard bad things about those these do not have that i was pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. at how well they yeah. performed um like it was let I me mean, the, the the wound channel was pretty impressive i mean the, the the blood trails were short they were really they worked really really well Um, But again, they were for like Hill Country deer, which generally aren't very large. Um, That being said, going forward, like this year, I think I'm going to experiment with some two-blade, fixed blades. Specifically, I'm looking at the Magnus uh, Black Hornet, I think. And uh, right now, my arrow setup is a Black Eagle Renegade. But when I bought them, they only had the 350 spine which is like a, I think it's 8.7 grains per inch. I, with my old, my old bow shooting 300 spine, which was like 10 grains per inch or something like that. 10.7. So it's a little bit heavier. So I think my finished arrow weight for my, my, my other one was like 468 ish grains. This one's running right around 420, which is lighter than I, I'd like, but I mean, it is what it is. I'm sure it'll still work fine, but I do want to try experiment with like a heavier arrow setups, kind of like rancher, not too heavy, Cause he runs some heavy ones. I don't, I don't know exactly how heavy, but I know he likes some weight. Yeah. Uh, um, but I do want to try some heavier ones, maybe around like the 480 500 mark. Cause I still want relatively flat shooting. Um, I just kind of want one arrow that I can like, cause I'm hoping to do some Western hunts in the future. I just want one arrow that I could like hunt the, you know, white tail here with, and then be able to go out West and like, maybe shoot like a mule deer at 40 plus yards if need be without having, dropping too much, you know, um, so I think four eighty ish might be probably the sweet spot for me personally, possibly, but uh, cause those four sixties man i mean they they blew through the deer like nothing they work they work really, really well,
0: yeah, mine. I don't have a weight on them, but I know they're about eighteen percent front of center, and oh yeah, a significant drop, like I've got a if I'm shooting in the thirties, you know if I'm shooting. Thirty, you know, thirty-seven yards, thirty-nine yards. I've got to know what the yardage is, or it'll go under. Um, so, yeah, that's some weight, man. Yeah, inside of twenty is what I'm looking for. So, <laughs> yeah.
1: right, ideally, I think. Mm-hmm. I think any archery hunter is <laughs> ideally twenty in. Right. <laughs> yeah. Have either of y'all ever shot traditional bows, recurves, long bows, anything like that?
2: Um, never on game, just uh, messing around.
0: So, yeah, I've got a um, recurve for my bow fishing setup, but also kind of getting back into archery as an adult. It started with kind of bare bow shooting. Um, so Arkansas Game and Fish, we have the archery in the schools program. Mm-hmm. Um, so learning how to shoot those bows pretty, um, pretty well and teaching people how to shoot those bows. They don't have a sight on them or anything like that. You're shooting instinctively. Um, so I actually wanted to get in or get or actually set up my recurve bow that I've got for bow fishing, and set it up um, to where I could either just do like 3D shooting or eventually hunt with it. Cause it's got about a 40 pound draw weight.
1: That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I've, I've shot y'all's bows uh, <laughs> and I'm not the best. I mean, I hit the, we, we were doing the 3D targets. They were doing a, uh, I think y'all were hosting an event for uh skeet shooting for the schools in Jacksonville and I went out there and was shooting the 3d targets with those bows and uh, mm-hmm. these little kids come up probably eight, 10 years old and just, I mean, damn near Robin hood in these and these arrows and these little targets. And I'm like, man, these kids are freaking yeah. good. Putting me to shame. <laughs>
0: oh, man. And I've, I've taken those bows out on 3d range and you know, you can reach out with them.
2: I actually had a buddy. He just, well, with a couple of things. I don't have either of you heard about this kid. I think he's out of Oklahoma. I'm not sure. I think this dude built his own bow from wood. Can't remember what wood he used, and he used a flint or yeah, I think it was a flint-tipped arrow, and he harvested a deer.
1: Really? Yeah.
2: Like I mean, he he did everything himself. I think he even built the arrows, but he did everything himself, dude. It was it was wild. I think it was in Oklahoma. Can't remember
0: that's freaking awesome wow that is that's is amazing yeah.
1: dude that's something that i would i would want to yeah. do someday i've always wanted to go and shoot you know traditional bows i i don't know if it's you know my native american in me that just makes makes that seem so amazing or maybe it's just because it's it's uh more gamey i i really don't know i've just i've always felt like i wanted to go do that and i've never had the opportunity um did y'all hear about jonathan Moreland? harvesting that uh public land elk here in arkansas no, no no i hadn't yeah he drew his tag this year and uh if i'm not mistaken i think him and his team were the first in the modern day age to harvest a public land elk in arkansas with a traditional bow and um that's i'm awesome. hoping to get him on the podcast soon but oh, yeah. dude i was like god that seems like a freaking hunt of a lifetime dude that's insane oh, yeah. I'm
0: trying to get him in that clothes oh man that's amazing yeah huh?
1: yeah I was like, God, oh, that would be freaking awesome. Hell, I, I just want to go up to the, uh, North Arkansas and just try to get some pictures and videos of those elk up there because, you know, there's a lot of areas that you can't hunt them, but, you know, they go to feed. And, uh, you know, I think we said this on a previous podcast that mm-hmm. me and Jose didn't know that there was elk in Arkansas and we we're driving up to the Buffalo and I'm like, did <laughs> I just see a freaking elk crossing sign? What the hell? It's like, maybe they just ran mm-hmm. on a whitetail signs or something. <laughs> but yeah, we researched and found out. I was like, oh shit, there actually is elk yeah. in Arkansas. It's crazy.
0: Yep, we've got a small herd. They're up around, er, the number's probably around five to 600 now. Um, mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain elk that were brought here in the 80s, I want to say. I Not, see. 1986.
2: Have you ever seen them, Trenton?
0: Oh, yeah. So um, for a few years there, I was going pretty much every year around actually like October. Um it's kind of like the big season for them. And we have a nature center up there. the Ponca Elk um, Nature Center. And, you know, they would ask for people to come up and help because they get really, really busy, even though Ponca is tiny. It's a tiny town. But they get really busy in October because people are coming to see the elk. Um, <laughs> so I would go up there and help them out and go see the elk in the morning hear them Bugle. It, they're pretty awesome. It, it, it's incredible.
2: I have never seen... A wild elk, I don't think.
0: One day, we,
1: hopefully. We've seen high fenced elk yeah. uh, in Texas before, in the hill country out by Fredericksburg. But yeah, I don't think I've ever seen wild elk before either.
0: We're on the tail end of kind of that season, but you know, if you ever get a chance, come on up here to Arkansas, you'll see them. Should go, Russell, up on Buffalo. Dude, National we need Road. to make,
1: it, yeah, we need to make another trip. Actually, I might be going to the Buffalo. Not this coming weekend, but the weekend after, so really yeah we uh we're we're still debating on what we're gonna do the weekend of the eighteenth, and if the weather's you know not horrible, I'm thinking we might go to the buffalo do a little short camping trip, so nice, I feel like it's due, I mean, I don't know, I just got back from a sabbatical on on the, coffee <laughs> time, but I mean, who's gonna say no to the buffalo? You know what I mean,
2: for sure, yeah you're gonna you gonna try and uh do any yeah. sneak in any hunting or fishing here lately or here soon i should say
0: oh yeah so the week of thanksgiving i've got a couple of weeks off so the thanksgiving week and the week after um so even though i'm bow hunting i'll be out there wearing my orange um trying to trying to make something happen with the deer <laughs>
2: So you said even though you're bow hunting, so as an archer, you don't have to wear hunter orange in Arkansas?
0: So as long as there's no um, gun season open, you don't. But um, when there's a gun season open, everybody has to wear orange if you're in a, in a zone that has an open gun season. You know, so you have to wear a gotcha. hunter orange hat and your vest and... If you're on public land, if you're using a ground blind, you have to have orange on the outside of your ground blind as well, visible from every side.
2: Dude, so that just reminded me of something. I was, I'm, I'm a part of this hunting group on Facebook. I don't know why it's not a thing here in Texas. I, at least nothing that I've read has indicated that it is. But this guy wrote this, this post on, on that page. He was saying how he was hunting public land. And he had this spot, and he set up a blind and everything. He'd never seen another soul in that area. So he went in there, um, and he was hunting and everything. And he got in there before dark, just got to his blind, whatever got set up. Sun came up. He had a buck on camera that he had been chasing. buck never came through, so the guy never took a shot. He was just sitting there. But he noticed that just across the field from him, there was this structure. He didn't really... He never really noticed before, paid too much attention to, and he looked. He said he was looking through his binoculars or something, or a rifle scope. Can't remember. And it happened to be another blind. Luckily, the hunter was not in there. But he's like, dude, he, in the post, in this post, he's like, imagine if that buck would have walked through. He goes, if if he would have shot, never saw that blind. I mean, yeah. that blind was right, you know, was right across the way, or if, the, or vice versa, you know, that guy shot. I mean, it could have just been a mess. And he said ever since then, he's kind of like you know, put his uh-huh. hunter orange or whatever. And I was like, dude, that's something I personally have never thought of when, when, you know, going public land hunting or anything, but so PSA to anybody here in Texas or anywhere, really, who's doing public land stuff might not be a bad idea. Yeah. Put some hunter orange on your blind
0: or tree stand or whatever, just so folks know where you're at.
1: Definitely good to know. I never thought about that.
0: And, you know, like I said, for Arkansas, this is a regulation. You'll get written up. You'll get written up here in Arkansas if you don't have it on if you're on public land and you don't have Hunter Orange on you and on your blind, your ground blind. Um now if you're elevated, um that's a little bit different. But if you're on the ground, if you got a ground blind, you need to have it. That's crazy. So,
1: so if you're elevated, say you're you're in a tree stand, you don't have to wear your hunter orange?
0: You still have to wear your hunter orange. You just don't have to have like something on your tree stand. Gotcha. Typically gotcha. you're visible. Okay. Makes sense. So yeah, your hunter orange kind of works as that. Yeah,
1: makes sense. Well, I did not know yeah. that, but I never, I never thought about the yeah. the ground blind thing. That is, that's definitely <laughs> that would yeah. suck to be shot at or shot, you know, unknowingly. Dude, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I've been shot at with a with a shotgun.
1: Yeah, right, like during those <laughs> Yeah,
2: sorry. Yeah, oh yeah, they like a. Hey, projectile going that fast like whipping past your ear like cracking oh my god dude forget that that would scare the crap out of me yeah. <laughs> so any other like uh, public land advice for folks who may be wanting to enter the field during uh, gun season trend?
0: yeah if you're if you're getting up into a tree stand have a harness and be connected to the tree from the time you leave the ground to the time you get back on it um, so as a hunter ed instructor um, it's part of my job. We every year we get a hunter incident report. Um, so it compiles all the hunting accidents that happen all throughout the year, um, and you know we get it in like one kind of nice little pamphlet. So we can take them to classes and teach people about them and t- tell people what's going on. It also gives us an idea of what we really need to point on in classes because you know people aren't following this particular safety rule or um, this regulation. So, and that's the always, every single year, um, falling from a tree stand is the number one incident. Really? um, Majority of the time, that's what's what's happening out in the woods, people falling out of their tree stands. And it's either not wearing a harness, um, or they have a harness, they're not connected to the tree, or the tree stand is in disrepair. Like, people strap up a tree stand on a tree, and then they never check those straps, and if... That tree stands up for two, three years, and those straps are out there for two or three years, getting just sunbaked and um, yep. degrading. Eventually, they'll snap, and yeah. you know you get a tree stand fall over. That's yeah. some solid advice.
1: And there are some uh, pretty tall pines here. I couldn't imagine falling out of one of them.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. And it and the thing is, it doesn't take much. Like and especially, you know, you're up there with a firearm or you're up there with a bow with a sharp, you know, broadhead. It doesn't take much to really hurt yourself. Oh,
1: could you imagine a broadhead going through like your thigh when you <laughs> fell? Oh.
0: No way, horrible. dude. Horrible. It it happened last year. <laughs> Did it really? Yeah, it happened to a guy last year. He had one go through his ankle. <sighs>
2: Ooh. Did y'all hear about uh there there's a guy I can't remember where he was, but he was hunting with a spear. I think it was Tim Wells, maybe. Uh, I, I, don't, I need to fact check that before I say anything uh, about the name. But there's a guy. I guess he's a. I guess he's a well-known, like uh, I don't know, TV hunter or whatever. He fell out of. He was spear hunting. I think he fell out of a tree, and either the spear landed on him or he landed on the spear, but like went through his leg. And I don't know if it cut the artery or not. But the dude was like almost bleeding out. And luckily he survived, but dude, that was—I was, was like—he might have been in Africa too. Let me double check.
1: Dude, that would suck. Could you imagine going on the hunt of a lifetime and then it just turning tragic for something like yeah. that? Like that would suck. Just the the roller coaster of emotions you would go through.
0: Yeah, and you're you know you're out in the middle of nowhere, especially if you're in Africa.
2: Yeah, so Tim Wells, it is Tim Wells.
0: Okay, wow. He was actually just here. um he spoke with our commissioners, um really last month, just a couple of weeks ago. yeah, um, but you know you're out in the middle of nowhere, and something like that happens to you, you have no clue how to you know react to it, like you don't know how to get to emergency services or help, you know that could be terrifying right
2: so i found I found an article, so check this out. He says, the hunt of a lifetime took a turn for the worse when a hunter found himself impaled by his own spear. Tim Wells announced that he was recently in, uh, injured during a trip to Africa where one of his spears dropped on his leg. Thankfully, it missed his femoral artery and he was able to stable, stabilize the wound. He was rescued six hours later.
0: Damn. <laughs> that Damn. is
2: insane. <laughs> I think oh. he's got a YouTube up. I think he recorded himself. Damn. That's crazy.
1: Dude, that just sounds extremely painful. I mean, because you think about the spears they use. Like, those are freaking massive broadheads. And just imagining that, yeah. oh, going through yeah. your leg. A hard pass.
2: Dude, in Africa, where there's lions and hyenas, and you're Hy- on the ground for six hours. Bleeding. Dude, forget <laughs> that. That's, like, the worst place for that yeah. to
1: happen. Right, or accidentally stabbing <laughs> yourself while spearfishing in Australia with great whites. <laughs> that would I mean, that's
2: essentially what happened, just on land. Yeah,
1: yeah. Ah, yeah. dude. Mm. Yeah, that's that dude crazy, not man. sound like fun.
2: <laughs> so, I have. I guess this we're along the same vein of just like hunter safety in general for hunting season. Um, I'm not a hunter educator by any means. Nowhere close, but I would say just from, you know, the, uh, talking about the blind hunting blind situation on public land, know your target and what's beyond, you know, make sure you're shooting at what you're supposed to be shooting at like a deer, you know, don't get excited when you see stuff moving, take the time to look at what you're doing, know what's beyond your target. Just, just be safe. And when you're crossing fences or if you have to crawl anywhere, probably be a good idea to unload your firearm as well not put it on safety but actually unload your firearm because i've heard and read many stories where a gun fell over when they were trying to cross a fence whatever and they got shot or their their partner accidentally hit the trigger or their dog accidentally hit the trigger or whatever unload your firearm just take a little bit of time
1: i don't remember where i heard it uh may have heard it on another podcast but there was um an accident somewhere i believe it was last year where Um, A guy was duck hunting and his dog had set off the shotgun Mm. in his truck and they found his body, you know, deceased from his dog setting off his 12 gauge in in the vehicle because the the gun wasn't on safety
0: or unloaded. You would not believe how often that happens, Um, like a dog jumping in the back of, you know, truck or side by side and setting off a gun. It happens a lot. Really? Yeah.
1: So, yeah, y'all be safe out there, folks. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All it takes is a little bit of your time, but it can literally save a life, if not your own. So just take some time.
1: Exactly. Firearm safety is extremely important.
2: Also, if you're going to be hunting public lands or something like that, let someone know where you're going. Drop a pin. Share it with somebody. Share your location with somebody. Take a, uh, a GPS unit with you or one of those, what do they call those, SOS things. Just cause you never know what's gonna happen, especially when you're out in the woods, by, if, especially if you're going by yourself.
1: Exactly. Well, we're coming up on a uh, on time the time limit for the episode. So, uh, is there anything else that you want to want to talk about before we go ahead and get off here, Trenton?
0: Uh, so, um, if you're in Arkansas and you're wanting to learn how to hunt, um, definitely check out Arkansas Game and Fish. Um, we're doing a lot right now, um, like we were talking about with declining hunt. Hunting numbers. Um, we're doing a lot right now to try and get people into hunting. Those people that don't have mentors, you know, in their lives, find us. We've, we've got stuff going on. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier before the episode, but like. We've got some duck hunting opportunities um, through different programs that we have, like becoming an outdoors woman or check in at your local nature centers. Um, They have some duck hunting opportunities. So if you want to learn how to do that, dove hunting, um, we do the same thing. Squirrel hunting as well. Um, I teach a class. Actually, I teach a class um, for bow hunters. So people that may have never touched a bow before but want to learn how to bow hunt. Um, I take about six or seven students every year and we walk them through a whole year of archery basically. So we start with, you know, learning how to shoot, um, getting a bow and actually working on it and setting it up themselves so they know how to do most of that work, Um, then practicing and shooting 3D, even shooting tournaments and then taking it out into the field. So. If you're interested in learning any of this type of stuff, fishing classes, anything, check out the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Check out our website, agfc.com. And we're here to basically teach you whatever you want to learn. We've got somebody that can teach it.
1: Yep. And there's nature centers all over the place. So just find your your closest nature center. Um, also, if you go to our website, we have a link to Arkansas Game and Fish in our partner section. Uh, so if you scroll down, go to our partners, uh, you can scroll through and, and uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife is linked there as well as Arkansas Game and Fish. So um, those are the two states that we're most active in. So we have links to their websites, go straight to their landing page and you can find your resources there. And then also in the description of this episode, I'll go ahead and put Delta Rivers Nature Center Facebook linked in there, um, so you can just go to the description and and go directly there if you're in the Pine Bluff area. Heck yeah! So
2: we got a we got a uh, some fun facts to share with everybody. <laughs> I was really excited about this guy. Sorry. So this is ours, this is gonna be. This, this, this would have already passed by the time anybody hears this. But I was listening to a podcast on my way back from the field today, and I thought it was really great. And I found out in that podcast that it is National Gar Week. It's National Gar Week. Uh, this year is November 6th through the 12th. Um, and I have some fun facts to share with everybody. So fact number one, there have been seven gar so far that have been described. Those are the alligator gar, which are native to Texas. Uh, do you guys have them up in Arkansas? Are they native there?
0: Yep, we sure do. Um, actually, right now is um, we have the trophy alligator gar um, tags or the permit application period is open right now. It's open through to the end of the year. So if you want to kill one that's over three feet, um, you can apply for that permit and possibly get a chance. Sweet.
2: And I actually have some more fun facts about that in the second. Well, related to that. So, alligator gar is one. Number two is a short-nosed gar, which I don't think I've ever seen. Uh, long-nosed gar, which I have seen. Some spotted gar. Uh, there's also a Florida gar, a tropical gar, and a Cuban gar. And what's and supposedly gar are very, very good to eat. And in some places in the world, it's I mean they eat it there. Where I think it's like Central America. They said they eat it. Like it's as common there as salmon is here. Like they love it down there and uh yeah and and going back to what Trent said so alligator gar from aside from that i've have friends who have eaten it. i've never had the test try myself though i would love to who actually love it and so one of the ways they like to eat it is by preparing uh, like essentially gar balls which are like a i guess similar to like a fish cake um so those are supposed to be pretty good one of the many ways you can prepare it um what you don't want to eat are gar eggs Gar eggs are toxic to mammals, um, reptiles, amphibians—pretty much anything that's not a fish. Which is strange because fish will often eat eggs sometimes, depending on the species. But they think, or one of the ideas behind why they may be, is because of of I guess the uh, of, of the physiological um, adaptations of gar. Like Gar can thrive in oxygen with low water and stuff like that, where many other fish can't. So they think that because they're able to do well in conditions where other fish cannot, there's not really much for, you know, there's not really much of a threat for, for the eggs to be eaten. So they don't really, I guess, need to evolve the adaptation for that kind of protection. Whereas birds and mammals and things would be more of a threat so they think that's one of the reasons why the toxicity in the eggs is, affects, you know, mammals and other things except fish more so, uh, which I found kind of interesting. I don't really know the science behind that. I don't know if, if there's been any papers or anything written on that, but that's just one of the leading theories anyway. Um, also, in I guess regarding eating gar, their scales are insanely hard. They're composed of a material similar to that of enamel, which is what our teeth are made of. Um, so you would have so a lot of people who do this. I've heard personally. I've heard people taking like a uh, a grinder and and you know breaking through the scales that way. People take ten snips, um, pretty much anything that's not a fillet knife to get that thing open. And then once I mean you're in there, you can use a fillet knife to take the meat off and stuff. But you got to break through the skin first. And because of the skin is so hard, um, and there have been there has been historical evidence. Of Native Americans using scales from larger fish as arrowheads for hunting and things like that. Um, yeah, dude. and they I think there was in that podcast he said that there's some or some research going into um, I don't know if using the scales themselves or something similar to it and how like they're of how the the scales were like I guess integrated on the fish um, or meshed together, whatever. in in hopes of producing, like, a body armor for, like, personal defense and stuff like that, which is wild. And then um, they also use the scales for jewelry. Like, you can buy, like, Gar scale jewelry, like brooches and things like that, which is pretty crazy. And then the other thing is these things are, I mean, essentially prehistoric. They have changed very little from the prehistoric times. They actually predate the T-Rex, and they survived the cataclysmic asteroid impact, which is crazy to think about. So these things are insanely, insanely old and, and just well adapted to the environment and just resilient. So resilient that there have been attempts to exterminate them in the past because they posed a threat to, um, sport fish like largemouth and stuff like that. They just thought they were better off without them or they had better numbers without them. Um, but they survived even that they survived toxins. They survived electricity. They survived all that to persist today. And, um, Actually, I think what we discussed earlier in the episode about wolves and predators and things apply here. Gar just as much part of the ecosystem as anything else, if not more so. And uh, at least when an argument can be made for largemouth bass, right? Uh, at least southern mm-hmm. strain in northern states, but um, but yeah, they're they're essentially like the wolves of the water. They help to um, control populations. They uh, one could even say that a healthy gar population. Means that there's a healthy, um, I guess, prey fish, and in, in that, I guess in that lump would be bass because they will eat bass and stuff. So a good, just a good population in the water body in and of itself. So it could be a good indicator in that way too. So next time you uh, see gar, um, I hope well. Hopefully, this kind of changes those misconceptions and and you might think twice about just shooting them just because. And if you do shoot one um maybe try and uh, make some guard balls out of it uh, supposedly supposed to be pretty good stuff but just wanted to share those little fun facts for national guard week um, hopefully you guys enjoyed it because i thought it's pretty interesting and if you want to check out the podcast that podcast is called ologies with ali ward it's one of my favorites i think she's phenomenal and i think it's just a really good podcast with some really interesting guests and topics so check that out if you're so interested because there's a lot about gar that I didn't even get to it's super cool fish. I think you'll appreciate them a little bit more after that episode, just like I did.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've been fortunate enough to have gar uh, a couple times and depending on how it's prepared, um, the meat itself has a really, really good flavor. Almost. It's, it's almost like a buttery flavor. Um, almost reminiscent of like a scallop maybe. um, but the only way that I've ever had it is, is fried. So I've never had like fish cakes or anything made with it. Um, And if you don't fry it just right, it gets rubbery. So if texture is a thing for you, you might want to try preparing it a different way, but the flavor of the meat is, is really good. Highly recommend it.
0: You ever try Gartron? I haven't, I haven't tried them, but I've also heard that you need to eat it hot. It's a little bit greasier. And if it, if you let it cool off, that grease kind of mm. gets to you. Um, so eating them hot is kind of the tip I've
1: Good heard. to know.
0: Very good to know.
1: We might have to uh, do a gar trip here soon. I know that uh, recently when they started draining Lake Conway, uh, they opened up all regulations for people to go fish because uh, they're doing major renovations on Lake Conway. And I know that there are some massive gar in Lake Conway. So I'm not sure what the status is on that, but uh, if it's still able to be fished, I highly recommend
2: Dude, do you remember when we went fishing with your buddy, um, God, Joe, at that at that with the with the pontoon boats, or whatever that we had, and yeah. we saw that massive gar. It was like four foot long. Yep.
1: And you hooked it like three times. <laughs> yeah, dude, it It broke my. It
2: it bit through my through my line. But yeah, dude, that thing yeah. was
1: huge. Dude, I don't know what was it was really though. Awesome. Yeah, I think it was a, a spotted gar, if I'm not mistaken. That makes sense. But it was it was big, and it was so we were, what were we float? We were floating. Uh, the Washtenaw, I think, from uh, Rimmel to Whitewater. And uh, oh, I remember. yeah, we stopped over for we, you know, pulled over on the bank and uh, we're sitting there and it was just swimming in the current upstream. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, dude. Th- so ever since that's happened, I've always carried bite wire on my yeah. my uh, little tippet holder because you never know when you're going to come across gar pickerel stuff like that. Weird stuff that I like catching on a fly rod.
2: <laughs> Do well, you get them? You get them behind where you live from time to time
1: oh, dude, hordes of and then yeah.
2: and then when you came to texas and we floated the colorado we found a buttload of them like a ton yep, of them yeah and i, I hooked up quite a few i just never landed one because it yeah, kept I've never getting landed off one either
1: i hooked one in louisiana uh spotted gar um i've hooked a few gar here on the washtar river and on the cattle river but i've yet to land one
0: nice you ever caught one friend I got one with my bow fishing set up, um, but we didn't keep it. And next time I'm, I'm going to try and keep them and try and cook it up and see what it. did. let us know. Yeah, for sure. For sure it will. That's awesome.
1: So, so what would be the process of making a, a fish cake? Would you have to use like a grinder or how does that work?
2: I have no idea. I've never made a fish cake.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure you could probably mince it up if you spend enough time with a knife.
0: What you would probably do is like pre cook it a little bit mm-hmm. and flake it. Um and then go ahead and start making the cakes, just like you would do like a salmon cake or something like that with canned salmon. Um that's probably where I would go with it. Um I don't know, maybe you could, you know, blend it up or something like yeah. that. I've I've never tried yeah, to make that. any
1: type of fish or crab cake or anything like that, so
2: Okay, so I looked up a recipe right now. It says In a perfect world, you would run the gar meat through a meat grinder. Mm. But you can make gar balls without. You can roughly chop the fish in a food processor or your knife. It just has to be chopped. Then you mix that with the Cajun trinity consisting of celery, green onions, and green peppers, or jalapenos if you want a little heat. Eggs, breadcrumbs, and Cajun seasoning. I guess you just roll them up and uh, fry them.
1: Yeah, that sounds phenomenal. Now my mouth is watering.
2: And then you put some Cajun gravy on there. Whew. Dude, we got to do this. You got to do this.
1: That's 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 going to happen. Next time they're out here, they just drained the lake or lowered the lake. I think they lowered it at five feet uh, this year, so I don't have any water behind my place. But uh, next spring, I'm definitely making it happen.
2: <laughs> Dude, let's do it. Guard, catch, and cook.
0: Hell yeah. Yeah.
2: You want to come help out, trader?
0: Oh yeah, for sure. It sounds like a class <laughs> idea, right? Right. <laughs> Start working Dude, on that. So speaking
2: of classes, do y'all, I know we're trying to close it up, but I, I just want to uh, share my thought before I forget. Do y'all have any like um, classes for like game to table type stuff, like processing and cooking,
0: uh, wild game and fish? Yeah, we sure do. So, um, we do, um, fish pretty often catfish. So catch cook and clean. Um, We've also done deer before, um, we've done squirrel before, frogs before. Um, so we've tried with a lot of different species. So um, as we just kind of think of stuff and try and you know figure it out, we 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 do them. So um, yeah, we've done all sorts. And we've even had some out of, kind of out-of-pocket ones. So um, we've got a guy that he works out further in East Arkansas, and he's kind of our go-to for a lot of cooking classes. His name's Will Hafner over there at um, Cook's Lake. And he's done, like, raccoon stuff. Um, he's done all sorts of stuff, just, you know, stuff that's kind of right. out of the box. Um He's made squirrel into egg rolls mm. and all sorts of things.
1: So speaking of squirrel, have you heard of the squirrel cook-off, the big festival they have of Missouri?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we actually hosted um, hosted it here. So it was in Springdale. Um, they hosted it just maybe a mm-hmm. month or two ago. Yep. Yep. There's one here in Arkansas. Ma- maybe do. it was. Up there, so i was listening to the ozark
1: podcast and they're based out of north arkansas missouri area um they they cover they they travel all all over the ozarks but they were talking about the squirrel cook mm-hmm. it may have been the one in springdale but it was around that time frame and um they said that there's like all sorts of different types of cuisine whether it be indian or you know other middle eastern ty- uh you know types of food asian food stuff like that all made with squirrel and i was like God, that makes <clears> me want to go up there and so i think i might try to uh to volunteer for it next year <laughs> that's awesome
0: yeah that would be a, a one a fun trip because it, it's usually a lot of fun people are really you know mm-hmm. festive about it um and they're like you said they're really creative about the different recipes and there's all sorts of little yep. competitions um like there was a squirrel cleaning competition um and actually our small game biologist um program biologist he actually won it this year Oh, nice. that's awesome <laughs> kind of cool yeah that's, that's so pretty cool. awesome Jose,
1: you should come up for that next year we should we should go up there as a podcast and try to volunteer maybe you know help out one way or the other i think it'd be fun
2: dude i'm down
1: sweet sweet well other than that is there uh anything else that y'all want to cover before we go ahead and get off here
2: i shared my fun facts i think i'm good
0: no, just thank you guys for hey we you appreciate
1: on. you on you're welcome on anytime it's, it was a pleasure having you on and it's a it's a nice learning some stuff from somebody that actually educates for a living so we appreciate yeah. you spending your time with us
2: yeah man thanks for coming on it was a blast and hope to have you on soon or sometime in the future and maybe even do some fishing and hunting with you up in Arkansas at some point
0: yeah that sounds great thank you guys yes sir
1: y'all have a good one
0: this has been Wildlife Outdoors thanks for listening Follow us on Facebook at Wildlife Outdoors and on Instagram at wild.life.outdoors. Let's go live life on the wild side.